Welcome to episode 122 with my guest Valerie. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. An hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. All kinds of stuff there you can get involved in. There's a forum. You can support the show financially. You can take surveys. You can see how other people responded to surveys. There's there's like eight different surveys on a variety of topics. And if you're familiar with your show, you know I read them. Um, they're a part of the show. And they let me get to know you guys. And I think uh, you guys also get a lot from them, according to the emails I get from you. Um, they bring you some comfort to know that you're not alone in the stuff you think and feel. Um I have gotten an offer in uh, for the middle of November to do two live shows um, in Toronto as part of a, a mental health awareness uh, event, and um, I think the dates are Friday the 15th at night and Saturday the 16th during the day. Um, so I've posted in the forum, there's a thread called meetups and then there's a sub, or I'm sorry, not meetups. It's, um, would you like to have a mental illness happy hour show in your town? And then I think there's a sub thread of, um, uh, Toronto possible show in Toronto. So there's a poll on there. If you guys who live in uh, Ontario would, um, cause I know we've got some listeners in Ottawa as well. Um, uh, if you wouldn't mind taking that poll if you are interested in uh, attending that show and then I can get a, a feel for uh, how many people are going to come out. Let's get into it. I am, uh, I've am. i decided, by the way, um, to kind of backload the show with um, more surveys after the interview. Um, I think that's what uh, most people enjoy because some people um, think they're in the minority, but there are some people that, that um, fast forward through the surveys. So... Um, I may read an email or two up front and uh, just a snippet from a survey, but uh, the bulk will be, be afterwards. And if you don't like that, you know what you can do. G-F-Y. This is an email I got from a woman who calls herself A, and she writes, I've been wanting to write this email since I first started listening to your show over three months ago, but writing it down makes it more real for me and means I have to deal with it. I don't know how to deal with these things. I've been with my, I had been with my boyfriend for over a year when I found texts in his phone from another man, explicit ones, where he invited this man over so he could give him a blowjob, and then they talked about it. He assured me um, this all happened before he met me, that this has happened about six times in his life. He's not gay. He just gets off on sex. So I worked through it my own way until the text happened again about four months later. He says it's how he copes with things, that it, doesn't real, that it doesn't feel real to him. That was when he told me that his, quote, dad got him into it, unquote. When I asked for more information, he just told me, what do you think? I think about this every day. We're still together, but things haven't been the same since I saw those texts. I blame myself more than him. I have to just interrupt here and do not blame yourself uh, for this. Uh, at least where you are right now in this. Um, I blame myself more than him, like I'm not being accepting enough. Uh, I want to accept him for who he is and his sexuality, but I am struggling with it. However, I feel since I've told him I love him regardless and I trust him again, I don't know that I can keep bringing this up with him. 
Uh, I've just been seeking an understanding, open-minded perspective. And every time I hear you talk about the fluidity of someone's sexuality, I take a deep breath and sigh and know I'm not alone and he's not a freak for these desires of his. But it concerns me, this relationship with his dad. I need to know more. I fear how he would act around our children if we had sons. I'm concerned how much of that is in him, how much it really affected him. Not sure what I'm looking for from you. I just don't know. I know where else to go at this point. It feels like old news and something I need to move past or not. I love him, and I don't want this to be the thing that completely tears us apart. Um, definitely, you don't need to move past this. This is something that, um, in you know, I'll, I preface it all the time. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a licensed uh, mental health worker, but these are my opinions, and this is a big deal for your relationship with him. And, and it's not about it, whether he's gay or straight, I think, or bisexual or where that is. It's about being able to have trust between you two and being able to have intimacy. And, you know, I think most relationships struggle with intimacy and trust because people are afraid of being judged. And you know, I would imagine when he was a kid, when his dad that did that to him, he had to put all of his fucking walls up to get up in the morning. And my the first thing that popped into my head when I read this was they should both go to couple counseling and going to that at least once a week for a year should be a deal breaker for you. Um, if he doesn't do it, that you get out of the relationship because sexual abuse is traumatic enough for somebody, but sexual abuse from a caregiver is especially traumatic because that's the person that was supposed to protect you. Um, so he, I'm sure he's got really, really deep wounds and, um, you know, the thing about, and I wouldn't be one of these people that think if you just marry him, everything is going to work out. You know, I see so many people that do that. They think, you know, marriage will make me happy enough to uh, that this we won't worry about this issue anymore. And that's uh, that wouldn't be the case. So I think the the thing that's also awesome about couples counseling is you'll have an objective person there that will advocate for you. Um, so. You know, there's bad selfish and there's good selfish. And I think this is the time for you to be good selfish and to really think about your needs. Because, um, you know, sometimes letting somebody go, I'm not saying that's what you should do here, but you may have to. Letting somebody go sometimes is the, the most loving thing you can do because you're not only doing it to love and protect yourself, but you're doing it to show that other person there are consequences for them not dealing with their problem. And it helps them possibly understand how large their problem is and i just want to take it out with this speaking of uh, possible codependency this is from uh, the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself lou and about her codependency she writes once i can get everyone else's life in order mine will finally fall into place and that one hit me personally between the eyes that uh, I, I deeply deeply relate to that and I thought that was that was so well put um, and that reminds me of a joke I heard uh, what's the last thing to flash through a codependent's mind right before they die somebody else's life every human being has weird thoughts going through their head 
Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is one percent event. My body was abused. Ninety-nine percent judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I just want to mention before this interview starts that uh, this is recorded on Skype and 90% of the stuff that I've recorded on Skype, I haven't been happy with the audio quality. Um, this one, it's like just passable enough for me to air it and I felt like it was a topic that um, we hadn't covered on the show and so I wanted to uh, I wanted to put it up for, for that reason and we pick it up probably a minute or two into the interview and uh, uh, Valerie is talking about uh, finding out that she was pregnant at uh, 18 years of age. First of all, I was in denial for a long time about it. That was another interesting part about it was that uh, I was about five months along and had been telling myself all sorts of things about what was happening and why I was missing my periods and why I was gaining weight. And, you, you, were, you were 18 years old. And who was the father? My boyfriend. He was, um, he was 20. I was in high school with him. And um, He had graduated, yeah. obviously. Yeah, he graduated. He still lived at home with his parents. I still lived at home with my parents. And... Uh, yeah, so it was it was in our best interests to avoid the subject of what was happening, but uh, there came a point where too many people were noticing and not directly involved, so they were comfortable with saying, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you need to get checked out. This has to be taken care of. So I ended up going to the gynecologist, and of course she didn't even have to do a pregnancy test. She just took a Doppler um, heartbeat monitor and put it on my stomach, and you could hear the heartbeat. And I can't even tell you uh, what that was like. I mean, did you? Were you just? Obviously, you said you were in denial, but was it? Yeah. Was it? Were you? Were you like? That's a. How, how big was your stomach? I mean, five months. How, how could you <laughs> not know you're pregnant at five months? It was a lot of just saying that I was gaining weight. Oh. You know, and I was you, just gaining and you weight. Weren't, and you weren't getting your period. Right. But it's funny how many people will help you stay in denial because I had a friend tell me, well, you might be so worried about being pregnant that you're taking on the symptoms of it. And there is actually, <laughs> there is actually something like that, but this was not that, obviously. Yeah. But they were trying to help me. It wasn't helping. So anyway, I look back on it now and I'm just like, oh, my God, how did that happen? How did I let that get into my head that I was not pregnant? It was just so frightening. Um, what, were your a prospect. what were your parents hmm? saying during this, this time? 
Well, my father was never around. It was really just my mother, and I think she um, she was in as much denial as I was. She didn't want to deal with it either. So, had you not um, had you not used protection, or did the protection not work? Um, we used protection sometimes, but not all the time. He says we use the you know pull out method a lot of times, and. Uh, he said that once he just let it go, and I was like, oh, that's nice. Once I told him that I was pregnant, once I found out for myself, uh, he told me that he just at one point didn't even think about it. He just let it go, and I was like, oh, that's great. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how it happened. We just didn't use condoms in that particular time, I guess, and... It was like a massive cover-up again. Uh, it, my family still doesn't know, other than my grandmother, my mother, and my brother. Direct to, to this day, they don't yes. know. Really? Yep. Yep. So, so which which relatives don't know that are close to you? Um, my mother's brother, my uncle. He doesn't know. Um aunts we actually after my grandfather died we actually were distant from most of the family so it's really just my uncle that I, it still boggles my mind that he doesn't know that whole part of my life you know <laughs> but um yeah I, I, I sort of have left it up to my mother to make that decision to tell him I I don't even know what to do at this point about that, you know. Well, do you I, do you need to tell him? I mean, he's not really right. he's not really owed an explanation, is he? Not really, no, because he's almost as bad. It, it's so strange. The men in my family, it just tends to be like they're spoken about and rarely seen. <laughs> it's all women, and occasionally a guy will pop in as an uncle or whatever. So yeah, it it wasn't it wasn't that astronomical to me that she didn't want to tell him because he'd blow a gasket and make a big deal of, about it and he had no right to because he was never around. I mean, and it, it's almost like my father too. We had to talk to him about what was going on and he didn't want me I don't want to jump ahead in the story, but he didn't want me to um do the adoption. He wanted me to, I don't know, I guess marry the boyfriend, keep the baby. That's what he wanted me to do. And I hadn't spoken to him in eight years he, at he, that point. He wanted you to do anything that didn't involve him lifting a finger. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it was just, uh, my mother was appalled that he had any input at all, and I guess I was too. I think I was shell-shocked that I even heard his voice on the phone, because like I said, I hadn't talked to him in eight years, and now here he is. How far away from you was he living? Oh, goodness. Um, maybe a good hour's drive. Okay. And you're from, really wasn't. you're from Massachusetts? Yeah. Maybe not even a, an hour's drive. For the longest time, it felt like he must have lived across the country for him not to be involved in my life. But I realized he could have probably lived next door, and I still wouldn't have seen him. So uh, he lived in Attleboro. I live in Weymouth. So, I mean, it was probably 
a 30-minute car drive, but so that that's a painful part in and of itself. That had to hurt? Yeah. <laughs> Still does. I found out that my half-brother lives in Brockton, and that's 10 minutes away, and that he has lunch with my father occasionally. He's a half-brother, and he, he sees my father all the time, and I'm like... <laughs> It's just an endless rejection, endless rejection from my father. It just blows my mind. I just, I, I can't even, I just can't even understand how uh, an adult cannot know that a child wants. I know. And I, a lot of times I think it might have been my mother, you know, because women can push the father out of the life because of the relationship that they have with the man, you know what I mean? Like, maybe my mother made it more difficult for my father, but I, that's not an excuse. He was old enough to make an effort, show that he was making an effort. I remember he dropped off a birthday present for me in the bag, just on the front step, we, my mother had taken us out of the house, which is suspicious. I mean, she took us away, and then when we got there, back to the house, there was a fishing pole in a shopping bag for my birthday present on the front step. He was nowhere to be seen. It was just like, why even bother, you know? <laughs> That's almost a slap in the face along with a screw you. <laughs> do you. Do you think your mom had arranged it because she didn't want you to be around him? That's what I... I have my suspicions about that. I've never addressed it with her. Is your mom hard to talk to? She sounds like she must be. Yeah. She lives she in some to denial and bend the truth to fit whatever is convenient for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think our moms play bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might know each other. <laughs> oh, my they, God. They, they play it that that didn't happen, country club. Exactly. Is there anything more fucking draining than that? Uh, is there anything more draining than that? And It really isn't. <laughs> you know, there is, I, I, I hate to stereotype men and women, but if there is a stereotype, it's, it's, the, it's the, the female that is overly controlling and overly worried and the man that either shuts down or doesn't want to expend the energy to put up the fight that is necessary to get their, their point of view. And, mm -hmm. and the kids wind up being in this. Because I know my mom wore my, my dad down. And, and, and my mm -hmm. dad probably enjoyed not having to take any emotional interest in, in, in his kids. Because then, you know, it's yeah. more time to watch sports and sit at the end of the couch and think about himself. But right. it's, it's like, and I'm not just saying this because you have such a, a thick Eastern accent, but it, it, it's, it's like a perfect storm. It really is. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, your, your accent isn't that thick, but because you have an, an Eastern accent. Oh, it just, no, I'm from Boston. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, the kids are the ones that, that wind up getting fucked up from, from this. So you, you made the. Well, you tell me what the, what the next step in the story is. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, so after we went to the gynecologist and I got checked out uh, and realized how far along I was and um, I'm, I'm the here. next step. I'm here. Yeah, whatever that noise was that you just turned off was yeah. good because there's like a, it's almost like a loud sound like traffic or something or a vacuum cleaner. 
oh. every once in a while. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that is. It's not doing it right now. But I'll let you know when it when it starts doing it again. All right. Um. Yeah. So the next step was really just figuring out what to do. I was pretty surprised by some suggestions. Uh, well, really, I mean, other than adoption, what's the other option is to keep or to abort. And I swear, my mother, a Catholic Christian woman, uh, if it had been any, maybe a month less, she probably would have suggested an abortion, which pisses me off no end, because that's highly hypocritical from what we were raised in. I think it's amazing when people are tested in their values, how quickly yeah. they fall to the wayside when it comes down to it, you know? Yeah. So your, your dad um, is kind of out of the picture. What, I, I, and I'm going to have you back up here um, because I was getting that, that weird noise. Um, okay. So your, your dad's out of the picture and... How is your mom treating you at this point? You're five months pregnant or plus. How is your mom dealing with it? Well, uh, so first it was the suggestion, like I said, of, uh, it was really just a fleeting suggestion, but it still was pretty appalling to me that she would suggest abortion. But um, uh, for the rest of the time, it was basically out of sight from anyone but the immediate family, I mean... Was it, appa- was it appalling to you morally because you were against abortion or because it was against your mother's own kind of code if it were someone else's daughter? Well, it was kind of both. I mean, I am... I don't, I'm not really against it. I can see where people would use that as an option. I would never, you know, tell people that they couldn't have one it just it does go against what i believe so were you raised uh, I, any denomination oh roman catholic i, oh, I, I, had, the, I had the feeling but i didn't want i didn't want to be uh, uh <laughs> yeah obnoxious i didn't want to stereotype with the with the, the you know the boston accent i didn't want to assume uh but just, no, just no, so we know right. R- right now you've you've got a beer we can assume that as well yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it was kind of against everything that had been preached in your house and, and what you felt. Yeah, I think that was around the time that I really started to question religion in general. I mean, if you can just drop it like that, just because you're in a crisis, it it, it amazed me. I was, I was like, wow. <laughs> I thought you're supposed to stand up for your values and. Um, integrity in what you believe and it so it pissed me off on that level and it pissed me off on the level that I just I mean it's alive we just heard the heartbeat you know and five months that's pretty far along there's only four four left to go you're more than halfway there you know so and was your mom pushing for it or she was just putting no, that no, option it, on the table it was kind of like a first thought though you know it was like well what are we going to do about this we can't we can't have you keeping the baby, so there's only two options. The fact that it was even a second option or a third option was what was appalling to me. I thought that would be not even 
mentioned, but it seemed to be on her mind as an option. She definitely didn't push it, though. I will give her that. Do you watch Mad Men? Um, I've seen a little bit of it. Why? Because I just have this. I, I, I'm picturing you and your mom's relationship, like Peggy and her mom, uh, mm-hmm. in in Mad Men. I, mm. Did you did you not see any of uh, it when Peggy got pregnant and how she dealt with her mom and stuff? No. It just it kind of it, it just reminds me of uh, mm. of that a little a little bit. Um, sorry, sorry for that tangent. Uh, <laughs> a lot, right. uh, one of the things I like to do since it's my own podcast is grind it to a screeching halt and <laughs> kill any momentum that we've got going. It's a nice thing about not 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 uh, having to answer to anybody except quality. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, though. <laughs> yeah. So um, so let's get back to the fun stuff. The uh, possible abortion. <laughs> Let's get back to the frivolities. Oh, the fun stuff. Yes. Um, so you've so, got you've got this thing growing between your legs. Go. Yeah. Mm, okay. Go. <laughs> My motivation. Uh, <laughs> so. So it. Uh, now, were you dis- were you discussing this with your mom, or was it just she put her opinion out there, and you were to? It was up to you then to decide what to do. Was it? Was it known that it was going to be completely your decision or was the feeling that if you didn't do something that they wanted, oh, there was going to be held to pay? It was, yeah, more the latter. Um, it, it's, it was kind of like, it's your choice, but I mean, when you're not even allowed to sit on your front steps because the neighbors might see, uh, you kind of get a gist of uh, what your life would be like. Yeah. Now, to be fair, you live next door to the Kravitzes. No, of course. <laughs> but actually, you're not far off. I mean, we do. We live in a neighborhood. There's about three houses. It's a dead-end street. Um, and they kind of do look out their windows at everybody. But who cares? I mean, to me, I I just don't even understand that. It's your family. Who cares what they think? You yeah. know what I mean? I just, I couldn't even understand that. Even if they were going to throw rocks through our window, I wouldn't have made a a big deal about that. I would have moved if it meant that. I mean, but I mean, my mother saw what would probably end up happening. I understand her viewpoint on it. And obviously I wasn't ready to raise a child in any way. I was just leaving high school I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, with the rest of my life, you know. So it definitely, I knew what the right decision was going to be. And not for me so much as for my son. I just saw his future unfolding in a a dysfunctional family and... um, I know the way it was for me with my grandmother babysitting a lot of the time uh, when my mother was trying to go to college. And I just remember a lot of times where I just couldn't even believe the things that were being said to me. Even at the time, I mean, you know, when you're raised in a certain environment, it's amazing that you can actually recognize when someone is being hateful and just 
saying things that wouldn't even occur to me to say to them. I remember being a little kid and I was getting out of bed after staying out of school and my grandmother's yelling at me saying that I'm diseased and I need to get back in the room and like almost quarantine and that kind of thing, you know, just insensitive, just insensitive control, control freak, you know, that kind of thing. What, 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 what does she mean you were diseased? (laughs) I had a cold. Yeah. Yeah. That's what she meant. I had a cold. I was diseased and she wanted me to stay in bed. If I was going to stay home from school, then I was diseased and I needed to stay in the room, even if I was feeling better. I mean, just really. So everything, everything was, was kind of blown up into high drama. Yeah. And you don't make a little kid. I mean, to me, you don't say you're diseased to a kid. I I was very young. I was maybe six or seven or something. That's just a horrible thing to say to me. You're diseased. You're diseased. (laughs) Not you have a cold. I want you to feel better. If you get up now, you know, you won't get as you won't get well as quickly. No, you're diseased. So anyway. I didn't want my son to hear the term, and I knew this was ha- going to happen. And, and there was, a- and there was stuff besides that as well, right? It obviously wasn't just this isolated incident of a, a cold. Yeah, that's just the one that I remember the most vividly. Uh, just insensitive things said, and I know, like all I could picture was my son taking a cookie before dinner, and my grandmother saying, "Well, you're a bastard," you know, or something. Just. That's, you know, <laughs> that's something she would say? She would call people uh, like, a, like a bastard? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't have put a pastor at all. And so I knew I didn't want him to be raised by this family. <laughs> I, like, I like, by the way, how I'm like, wow, she called him a bastard. Like, my mom never said that a hundred times to me. <laughs> I know. But... but go ahead. It's so much easier to recognize it in, a, in other people. You can so It's so much easier to have compassion for them. Or even to say that he was a mistake or something like that. Oh sure, yeah, that would have been just a big old bullseye on your back if you're if you're in a, if you're in a critical family that is terrified yeah. of what other people think. They're going to take that. They're going to take that anxiety out on you. You just know that in your in your in your gut. Yeah, and and on him. And I, I mean, he had the opportunity for a wonderful life, a new start, perfect. I could make the. I could at least give him a start that seemed perfect. You know, nothing is perfect, but a lot better than what I was raised in. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I had a lot of deprogramming to do, and I didn't want him to go through the same thing. That's amazing that you knew that at eighteen, because a lot of people mm. don't realize how fucked their family is <laughs> until until they move out. Yeah, I know. And I've always lived at home. I think I've lived outside of my house for a year, and that was uh, like at the age of 21 or 22. No, more like 26. Yeah, probably maybe even 28. I'm trying to think really quick how far back that was. Probably more about 27 or 28. I lived outside the house for a year. And other than that, I'm still at home now. Because, well, that's another story altogether. I mean, I had a, I was engaged to a guy. We lived together. We broke up. I ended up moving back home. But so. And you're how old? 33. 33. Yeah. And you just finished, you just graduated nursing school. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as I was saying to you before we were rolling, uh, you've got, you've got a bright future because a lot of baby boomers are going to be dying. (laughs) 
there's a there's a long road of diapers in your future. And, and I'm sure, and I'm sure that's what nurses love to. That's the image they love to conjure up. <laughs> oh, I already have plenty of images of diapers as a nursing assistant. I've, <laughs> as a nursing assistant, I'll probably dealt with more now than I will deal with in the future, I swear. But luckily, I don't really mind that sort of thing. I really like helping people through that time and making them feel comfortable with that because I'm sure they have a lot of, you know, faces over them looking like, ew, you know, that kind of thing. And I love being the person that walks in and, no biggie, you know, I know it's a big deal for you. you. You've never had this happen to you before or it's embarrassing for you, but I've done this for a long time and I've seen a lot of things and there's nothing that can come out of you that I haven't seen, you know, <laughs> and I love being that way. <laughs> that's, that's, that's so beautiful, Valerie, because I can tell you, oh. you know, as a, as a, a kid who was in uh, hospitals uh, a lot, I had a lot of operations and some of them were very uh, embarrassing and, you know, had to do with just stuff that kids are, kids are embarrassed about. Um, the, the few nurses that come to mind that were acted like it was no big deal and were friendly to me and would sing songs and just had a compassionate look on their face. It, it meant the absolute world to me. So I'm glad, I'm glad that you get it because there, (laughs) there are some nurses out there that don't and they, Mm. they forget how vulnerable somebody feels when they're in that bed and you're dependent on them and you're scared and you're ashamed. It's like all your yeah. worst emotions in a big potpourri and you're, and you're kind of imprisoned in this, in this thing that you can't. And so when somebody comes along that, that makes you feel the opposite, that makes you feel um, normal, that makes you feel mm-hmm. safe, that makes you feel cared for and makes you feel like everything's going to be okay. It's, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So uh, I, there, there's going to be some people that will be very lucky to, to, to have you um, as a as a nurse, but I digress. <laughs> so, what what is the next thing that leads you to your to your decision? So, it was that it was feeling like I just wanted to give him the best start possible, and um, I knew it wasn't going to happen with me. So. I, uh, we went to a lot of adoption agencies and it was difficult to really find one that, um, that felt right. And we found this one and it's funny, (laughs) talk about no one, you made the right decision as you're making the decision. It was like Jewish family, um, and the first thing my mother said was, oh, Jewish. Oh, goodness. She wants Roman Catholic, you know. Really? And, um, yeah. So, doesn't, the funny thing doesn't is... Doesn't she realize either way there's going to be guilt? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, really. <laughs> there's the self-hating Jewish people and <laughs> the ultra-guilty Roman Catholics. Sure. It's everywhere. So... <laughs> And the great thing about it is, though, we found the perfect family. It was. It happened to be the first photo album that we were shown, but we looked through 
many, many, many afterwards, but I always kept coming back to the first one we were shown because it was a Jewish Roman Catholic family. And I knew that's what I wanted. I, I said, wow. I mean, talk about getting both sides of the story and being <laughs> able to make up your own mind about what you want to believe yeah. and seeing how two completely different viewpoints can live together. I mean, it was just perfect. And they happened to have, uh, they couldn't have children, which was another thing that I wanted him to be with. Uh, I didn't want birth people who could have children and then him be the only adopted child or something like that. So it just so happened they had a girl already that they adopted. And in their neighborhood, I found out later, they had uh, there were two other families adopting the same age as him in the same neighborhood. So they'd be going to school with other children who were adopted. It was just like... It was an amazing thing to find something like that, you know? Yeah. It was really good. And I, I met them on numerous occasions, and um, I really, really liked them. Kim and Mark. <laughs> it was only first names. You couldn't... It, it could have... I think it could have been an open adoption, but um, at the time, I was just so conflicted about it because I wanted... As time went on, I even wanted more and more to keep him, and but I knew I couldn't. I knew I was making the right decision, but it's still so hard. I mean, my firstborn son, how do you reconcile not having him with you? It, it was very difficult, but at the same time, it was wonderful because I knew he was going to be so well taken care of and just the best start. So, when it finally came time for it to happen, um, they weren't there for the birth. It kind of happened all of a sudden. Funny story is the way I, <laughs> the way my water broke. I had a dream that someone kicked me between my legs. <laughs> really? And when I yeah, when I woke up, my water had broken. So. Oh, that's I think it, it was from. him kicking me. Yeah, exactly. I think he kicked me, and uh, boom. So off I went to the hospital, and um, it was actually pretty quick, considering they induced. Uh, when, so when, it came when, on. When on a woman's fast. water breaks, how much mm. water comes out? <laughs> a lot. Well, it kind of depends on how everyone sort of varies, but there is a lot of water that's their padding you know yeah. yeah i say like i know yeah of course yeah oh yeah <laughs> you know how it is right yeah. <laughs> you know when you've drunk like a 12 pack you know how it feels <laughs> so it's like if you drank a 12 pack but you cared about somebody <laughs> What do you mean? Because <laughs> when I would drink a 12-pack, I didn't give a shit about anybody. Oh, oh. <laughs> being a mother, you're full, but you care about somebody. Right, exactly. Uh, but actually, by the time your water breaks, you are so ready to <laughs> just get it. Oh, my God. Near the, it's the last couple of weeks. Actually, the last month, it's just like, oh, my God. How much longer do I have this baby inside? <laughs> Don't you want to come out yet? <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> Isn't it getting cramped in there? I can't, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Oh, it's something else. Uh, Definitely. So you had the baby, and did you get to hold it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, but that is another funny part of the story. Uh, another weird thing that happened is that um, he had a, a hole in his neck. It was a very small hole, and it was covered by a flap of skin. A smoker, huh? Oh. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> you caught me. Oh. I'm so. sorry. I could, sometimes, again, my podcast, I get, to just, <laughs> I get to destroy it where I see fit. So he had a hole in his neck. Yeah. The, uh, so what happened was I did get to hold him for about an hour, but... Actually, being they didn't even explain to me what they thought the problem might have been. Um, but they had, they, I had him at a different hospital, and they had to bring him into a Boston hospital, like a children's hospital, to make sure that it wasn't some severe issue that he was going to have. And when I went to nursing school, I found out all the different issues that can happen that would that that might be a sign of, and I was like, oh, my God, no wonder they whisked him away. Because um, you can have fistulas from your esophagus to your trachea. You can have, oh, all sorts of things can happen. But anyway, so <laughs> um, so they took him into Boston. It turned out to be just a cosmetic, uh, just a skin flap with a, a hole. It didn't penetrate any tubes, any oh, airways or anything. Yeah, exactly. It was just like one of those things that they had to take him away from me, and I didn't really get a chance to bond. Thank goodness, because I know I would have changed my mind, <laughs> because I kept wanting to see him, and the adoptive family was actually getting nervous that I was going to change my mind because I just kept calling the adoption agency saying, can we have another meeting? I'd like to see him again. Can we arrange another meeting? I'd like to see him again. And finally, they were like, Val, you can't. Uh, oh, I gave my name. <laughs> That's all right. I don't care. Um, so they said, uh, you, can't, um, you can't keep seeing him. There has to be a last time. And that was hard to realize that there had to be a last time. So, but I did actually see him at the Boston hospital. I held him for a while there, but it's amazing the bond that happens when you get to hold the baby after he's just born. There's definitely a bonding that happens there. And oddly enough, thankfully, I wasn't able to have that because it would have been probably even more difficult than it was. So you got a little taste of it then. Yeah, I got to hold him for a little while. And and then once uh, a few days had gone by and then we went into Boston, you know, after I was uh, discharged, we got to go to the hospital to see him there. And I held him for a good, oh, I don't even know, three hours or four hours. And, and he had a little breathing tube and you had to hold it up against his face and... <laughs> But um, and so, what do you think of today when you when you think when you think of him? Mm -hmm. I just think of uh, 
the whole experience just of giving birth to him, holding uh, mainly the part of holding him at the uh, Boston Hospital and um, and seeing him for the last time at the adoption agency. I don't think I took my eyes off him once. We have pictures of of me holding him, of them holding him. And I don't think I w- was looking away from him for a minute. <laughs> and you've never seen him since since then, because isn't it up to him if he wants to meet you? Right. Yeah. I, I used to get pictures more often, and then they kind of tapered off with that. Because, you know, they they live their life. And um, I was actually, oddly enough, and this is the, where the guilt comes in again, I had to put it out of my mind Um to get through school, to get on with my life, I had to kind of forget a little bit. So when the pictures stopped coming with the frequency that they used to come with, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to see him, and at the same time, I didn't. And my mother, which is another reason why I And how did she ruin this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you. And it's not that she ruined it, but she was always on about the pictures, the pictures, the pictures. And I'm like, you know, wouldn't you rather have them here? (laughs) Why are you so wanting these pictures and reminding us of the fact that he's not here with us? It was probably me being more fucked up than her. Not, I wanted to see him, and at the same time, it was like, well, I'd rather not see him in pictures. It's actually the pictures that are reminding me how much I used to suck, how much I sucked at this, how I couldn't have him with me, and how he's not with me now. And it just, every year it was a reminder of that time. And uh, as wonderful as it was to know that he was happy and healthy, I knew that that was going to continue, and I didn't need a constant reminder of it. You know what I mean? Do you feel like um, there is a a part of you that, I don't know what the the right word is for it, a part of you that is kind of injured by it, or or is... um, that will always feel like a little part of you missing? Definitely. No, definitely. <laughs> it's, it, he was, he was beautiful and I wanted to have him with me and he's not and it's difficult. I did recently get pictures of him and, and there it all was again. I'm like, <laughs> and he's how old you now? Know, um, he's 14 in November. So, well, I, I think what you did is is uh, really commendable because that that took a lot of sacrifice on on your part to go to go through that, and that to me, you may feel like you never got to be a mother, but you made three of the most important decisions in his life and you made them selflessly. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty good contribution, uh, for the, for the short amount of time you were his mother. 
Mm. You made very loving, giving decisions. So that's that's my take on it. That's my take on it. Well, thank you for saying that because sometimes, you know, people will make you feel like that's not the case. And I, I don't tell a lot of people about it. I used to be open about it with certain people who are just friends, you know, because... I felt good about it. I felt like I had made the right decision and look at the great start I gave him. And as much of a painful experience as it was for me, it's wonderful for him. But a lot of people see it differently. You know, I I don't think any person should ever judge that is Mm. not carrying that baby. Mm. Uh, I really, I don't, because I don't know what decision I would make. I don't know if I could ever bring a baby to term. I, I don't, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do. And to try to make somebody feel bad for having an abortion or putting a baby up for adoption or having your life be a fucking mess and deciding to have the baby and keep it. Mm-hmm. I, I, as much as I would like to say, I. I know what I would do in that situation. I would do the right thing because there is a clear right thing. No, I, mm. I, uh, you guys, I can't imagine the shit that is flying through your mind in that time. And I, and I think the less people can uh, kind of judge each other and make people feel bad about it. Um, I don't know. I think there's enough judging going going on <laughs> in our lives right right now. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. I think it's no, that's. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say I think if we just try to keep our side of the street clean, um, that, that's the that's the best we can hope for, and try to keep our nose out of other other people's uh, business. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I mean, the judgmental nature of people astounds me, <laughs> and not just for my case. I mean, I even had to come to terms with the fact that. Okay, just because I did it this way, that doesn't mean that someone who didn't, you know, is making the wrong decision. I see the 16-year-olds with the babies, and I think, my God, I mean, is that really the best decision? You know, but it, it is for them, and, or the, and that's or the, what matters. You know? Or the woman who, uh, who had an abortion. Right. You know, I can't imagine the pain that, that somebody must feel. That, I know. that his uh, second guessing that decision. And I know there are you know, pro-life people listening to this right now and go, well, they should feel. No, no but nobody no. should feel pain. Nobody mm. should feel um, guilty for the rest of their life about, uh, about something, in, in, in my opinion. I know. What drives me crazy is people who think that... Um that having an abortion is like some great birth control method for people. I don't think that is what people want. It's just, it's the decision, you know, how to say this? Um, Like you said, I mean, they have to carry that with them just as much as any other decision that they make. Right. And I don't think people realize that when they are holding signs up saying you're a murderer. I mean, come on. Really? You have no idea what it's like. Yeah, my feeling on that is if if your house is full 
of adopted children and you are going and volunteering at an orphanage, mm. um, maybe you get to have an opinion <laughs> on that. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But until that time, sh- shut the fuck up. I know. Shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> there's so many unwanted children in this world. Um, so much child abuse because people are, are ill-equipped. Um, mm. So I, I already feel like I've said too much. Like I've put my foot in my mouth about every, every, single, uh, every single thing. <laughs> so I'm already feeling like, uh, uh, like, I've, like I've weighed in too much. But from the emails that you and I sent back and forth, uh, I just felt, I felt like yours was a, um, yours was a story that, other people needed to hear and especially probably other women out there that went through something similar and are experiencing guilt or loneliness or feeling like they made a huge mistake um, or whatever, whatever the thousands of emotions that must, that must go through your, your head. Mm. But I want to thank you for, for being so open and honest to, about it. Well, thank you. It's nice to talk about it because, you know, I don't really get a chance to too often. And it is a really heavy decision to make when you're in the moment. It's just, and then afterwards, the years that follow, just being able to talk about it and get feedback from people who are really non-judgmental. It's very important. Yeah, there's nothing more important in life than having friends that love you for who you are and for all your, all the idiosyncrasies we have, all the flaws that we have, you know, all the decisions we've made right or wrong. Uh, mm. there's nothing like that feeling of, of somebody saying, Hey man, I, I love you. I love you. Yeah. Especially like when you hurt a friend, you know, the friend that takes you back because they know that it was a, you know, an error in judgment that this isn't like a, a lifelong pattern of abuse, you know, on your part, but they, they let you be, have those moments of humanity. You know, I, I was mm. playing hockey Sunday night and we got stuck on the line with this guy who didn't pass. And I threw a, I'm not kidding you. I threw a five-year-old tantrum. <laughs> I threw my stick. I was yelling. It, it, the whole time I'm, I'm going, really? You know, that little part of me is watching me going, really? And, 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 I knew, and I knew part of it was because I'm going through this shit with my mom and it's painful and, and I'm – jumping out of my skin sometimes. And so I, I just, I kind of, I apologized to the guy I yelled at. And, and then I forgave myself for having that outburst instead of then going to the, Oh God, you're so pathetic, etc. And I had a great, a great rest of the rest of rest of the night. And, uh, mm, that's important to forgive yourself. <laughs> it really is. It's so hard. It's so hard. Mm. So I, uh, I hope you're, you're, um, uh, can find peace 
in in what uh, in what you've done, and um, I, I think you made a great decision personally. Thank you. I think you're a wretched person, but I think you made a great oh. decision. <laughs> the death blow. Thanks. <laughs> you're Catholic. I can't leave you up on a high note. <laughs> Got to bring you down. I'm send a recovering you, Catholic. We're going to send you off on the shrimp boat with tears in your eyes. Actually, you guys don't catch shrimp, do you? You'd be more like lobster, right? Lobster, yeah. Yeah, shrimp would be would be a southern. Well, Valerie, thank you, thank you for uh, for your time, and it oh, was thank uh, you, Paul. It was great talking to you, and um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll chat again sometime. Did, okay. did Did you feel like you got to say everything you wanted to say? Um, I think so. Sometimes, though, I don't know if other people would have a conflicting, the conflicting feelings of, you know, feeling like you're passing up a responsibility. And I just hope that people can see and make that decision without feeling like they're because that was a piece of it. It was like I wasn't ready to have him, you know. And as much as it was a great decision for him, it was a good decision for me, too. And that brings up selfish feelings. You know, you feel like you're being selfish. Yeah. But, um, but, but you, weren't, you weren't depriving him of responsibility. You were just handing him off to somebody who could be more responsible, which to me... Right makes you responsible. <laughs> you know I know, yeah. I mean? yeah. But the, but the yeah. ego is so insidious, it will find a way to make you feel bad about something. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so hopefully <laughs> you can recognize that that's just your ego attacking you and that's not reality. Right. Yeah. I've been able to kind of come to terms with that. It comes up every so often again, but <laughs> I think that's life. You know, you think you packed it away and boom, there it is again. Yeah. But... <laughs> Well, have a have a good night, and uh, I can't wait till you're an RN. <laughs> I'm sure you can. Me, I'm sure you can't wait either. But I can't. Thanks, thanks, Val. I'll talk to oh, you. Oh, thank you. Okay. okay. Good night. Bye bye. Well, many thanks to uh, to Valerie. I hope you guys uh, got something out of that interview. I uh, I know I certainly did. I've never really kind of uh, gotten inside the head or the soul, if you will, of uh, somebody who's had to make that uh, that painful decision. Um, before we uh, take it out with some surveys, want to remind you guys, um, there's a couple different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support it financially by going to the website, uh, mentalpod.com, and making a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, becoming a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Um, you just set your credit card information up on paypal and then it uh, takes it out every month until your card expires or you decide to cancel it it's super simple to do and um that money means the world to me that's the um i don't know if you could see but i just teared up a little bit um it really does mean a lot to me uh, you can also support the show financially by searching uh using our amazon search portal uh on our homepage to uh shop at amazon and then they give us a couple of nickels doesn't doesn't cost you any cost you anything um you can support us non-financially by going to itunes giving us a good rating and uh by uh spreading the word through social media 
I'm, a, I'm told that the Reddit uh, subpage isn't up yet for Mental Illness Happy Hour, but go join the forum, man. There's so many people sharing great personal stuff and connecting to each other on the forum. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing to behold. Um, let's get to the surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself John R. About his depression, he writes, spiritually hollow, life-draining, hopeless and hapless. About his anxiety, people can read my mind, see through me. I shrink, stammer, forget names of best friends and intros. About his alcoholism and drug addiction, chemical switch, every day, 4 p.m. Lately better, not daily. Um... About his OCD, houses spotless, drawers are a mess. For others, drawers are organized, houses a mess. About his OCD behaviors, um, he, he engages in picking, hurting, light cutting, and burning just to feel. About his anger issues, he writes, feels like I could burst every day, I burst every artery. Psychotic. Happens once a year in a computer, power tool, something must die. I am scared what would happen if somebody triggered that. I have no doubt I could kill. And then uh, any ideas to make the uh, podcast better? He writes, uh, I am by all standards successful. Educated, big house, fancy car, all the toys, a millionaire, self-made in a decade. But I'm hollow and I spend most of my time alone. Uh, thanks for filling some of the emptiness with your humor and soul and the beautiful people you interview on your show. A big hug to you. Well, a big hug right back at you, John. And um, I'm so grateful for the people who have all the outside stuff that come forward and let other people know that that alone can't, can't fill them up. This is also from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Painted Lady. And about her anxiety, she writes, The other shoe, a size 5,962, is about to drop directly on my head. You know the bad thing about having a size 5,962 shoe is when you go to the shoe store, they're out of it, and they ask you if you'd like to try a 5,961. And it's always a little tight, but you buy it anyway. Uh, her comments about anything to make the podcast better, she writes, most of the guests I've heard are recovering from their problems and handling their shit pretty well. I wouldn't mind hearing from someone in the thick of it, struggling to get by. I know it may seem depressing, but even half healthy looks so far away. Thank you, Painted Lady, for um, for sharing that. I, um, I think I should do that, too. I, I really do. My fear sometimes is that because this is a public thing that I'm going to... Um, exploit or feel like I'm exploiting somebody when they're in the middle of something in that crucial period where they don't really know. I guess I, if I felt like they were really committed to helping themselves and reaching out for, for help with a professional or a support group, I'd be cool with that. But um, yeah, I uh, I think it'd have to be the right person. You know, the, the interview with Mike Carano, if you haven't listened to that one, that's a good one for somebody who's in the middle of some some pretty intense uh, stuff. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by, uh, excuse me, a little too much pizza, uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Ruby. She is um, in her 30s, straight. Uh, she qualifies, I'm straight, but I'm also sexually attracted to women and only masturbate to lesbian porn. I don't w know what that makes me. Uh, that makes you a purchaser of uh, probably the largest 
I don't know what the fucking word is. I hate when I do that. Uh, that makes you part of a very large uh, consuming lobby, I guess you would. What I'm trying to say is a lot of people enjoy the, the girl on girl porn. She is in her 30s, was raised in a, an environment that was a little bit dysfunctional, um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, she writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was 11 years old, my mother was in the hospital and my aunt and uncle came to stay at our house to take care of me and my younger siblings. One night, while my aunt was in the shower, and right right there, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, let me guess, fucking uncle's going to come in. Yep. My uncle asked me to come lay in bed with him. I went and took the book I was reading with me, even though I felt very apprehensive. I laid by him in the bed, but didn't put my book down even though he asked me to a couple times he didn't touch me but i was very confused as to why he wanted me there and i was so scared he was going to touch me i prayed for my aunt to hurry up and after several agonizing minutes we heard the shower stop and my uncle told me i should go i went to my bedroom shaken and i cried myself to sleep uh i'm not a mental health professional but that sounds like sexual uh abuse you know maybe there's another word for it but that's fucking traumatic you know you didn't feel safe in your own house and let's remember this isn't a little adult you that's a foot shorter this is an 11 year old child who doesn't know how to advocate for herself who doesn't know what's polite and impolite and he took advantage of that and uh that's um don't underestimate that Deepest, darkest thoughts. Uh, Being around my parents and siblings is a chore most of the time. I love them, but for some reason, being around them is emotionally exhausting. Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was 15, I seduced one of my little brother's friends who was 12. Rarely a day passes that I don't think about what I did, and I have extreme guilt over it. I don't know if it would be considered molestation, but I fear that it was, and the thought of that makes me want to die. Uh, My first thought is forgive yourself, um, because... Wanting to die is not going to make your life any better or any better for the people around you. If I don't know if you, I, I would, first of all, I'd go to talk to a therapist about this. Um, maybe get in some type of support group for people that have been um, experienced some type of sexual violation. And, you know, I think it depends on what you were like at 15 and what he was like at 12. Because, you know, if he hadn't hit puberty yet and you were you know, had all the physical attributes of a uh, full-grown woman, woman, which some girls do at 15, then I would say that was probably damaging to him. But if, you know, I I don't know, maybe I should just shut my mouth because this is one of those things that's that's kind of right on the line to me. But if you can get in contact with these this guy, you know, maybe talk about it. And I have the feeling that what your uncle did to you fed into what you, you know, engaged in with that with that guy, that kid who was younger than you. So, but please be compassionate with yourself because telling yourself that you're a piece of shit, um, you clearly haven't done anything since then. So, uh, or at least you didn't mention it there. So, um, go easy on yourself. And, uh, all right, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. In my fantasies, I'm usually being dominated by an authoritative male figure type. He's usually telling me to masturbate while he watches. Sometimes in these fantasies, he's telling me what a slut I am, and others, uh, he's telling me how good and sweet I am. Um, I relate to that one a lot, by the way. Um, 
Let's see. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? No, I have a hard time telling my partner anything about myself sexually because I feel like he would be threatened by it and get angry or repulsed. We have been in a relationship since high school and all these years I felt I had to hide my sexual desires from him, especially the desires I have about females. Did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? My sexual fantasies don't bother me. I don't feel any internal shame about them, even though I can't share them with my partner. But the things that happened to me in my past and the things I did in the past that I keep secret make me feel a pretty heavy shame that is always with me. I feel like I am disgusting and a bad person, and I'm afraid that that feeling will never go away. Well, I think if you don't do something to process it, it will probably never go away. But I, I think with, with processing um, and being willing to do the work that's necessary to process stuff, I think, I think the chances are really good that you could find some peace with, uh, with both of those things. But um, I'm constantly struck by the relationship between people's childhood trauma and any sexual acting out that they, uh, that they do. And... Um, you know, I often think that that fantasy of wanting somebody to watch you masturbate really at the core of it, because I get that, that, that fantasy uh, coming up quite frequently. And it's, you know, kind of struck me one day is it's, it's really not about the sex. It's about at our deepest core, somebody wanting us to see at our, mo- us at our most vulnerable where, where we could be judged the most harshly and that they might accept us and even better be turned on. So I I think it's about the turn on of somebody seeing right into the core of your soul. And uh, that makes me feel better about it when I'm jerking off at the mall. This is (laughs) from, um, and that was a joke, by the way. This is from my first day in therapy survey. And um, we don't have names on this one. This is filled out by a female who's between 18 and 25. She is a client. Uh, What brought you to therapy? The first round was against my will. It was due to relatively severe self-injury. When I went on my own as an adult, it was because of what I now know is PTSD. Did you have any fears associated with starting therapy? Being judged. Locked up in a hospital. Abandoned. Ignored. Did any of these come true? I did have a therapist that overreacted on a number of occasions. If I said I was struggling with the urge to self-harm, she would insist we went to the hospital. Way to teach coping skills. As a client, what what, uh, worked best for you in therapy? She writes humor, and that's in caps, and a relaxed environment where I feel like I have control. Lights, seating, etc. What were your initial impressions of your therapist? Uh, My current therapist was gentle, uh, open to any and all questions from the first time we ever met. She has been wonderful. Her humor is nearly as sick as mine and showed that side of herself from the first day, obviously having picked up on my gnarly sense of humor. Um, do you feel like you can be completely honest with your par- therapist? She writes, I certainly feel like that. Um, anything you would like to share with a new group of therapists? She writes, don't be afraid to be yourself. Ask questions and check in on how you're doing. Be a person first. The worst kind of therapist is someone who is trying to be a therapist. Thank you for that. This I wish there were names to go with these so I could uh, thank them by name. This is the same uh, survey filled out by a woman uh, 
between 26 and 35, uh, depression and anxiety brought her in. She was afraid that it wouldn't help. And uh, she writes, as I've done therapy, as I had done therapy before and didn't feel better. Um, did any of your fears come true? No, I'm currently working with a really great therapist and can actually see my improvements. Uh, what has worked best for you in therapy? It's been helpful to have a very intelligent therapist who has used mindfulness skills during therapy and then I practice them at home as homework. We do lifespan integration and that has brought healing. I feel safe with my therapist. Um, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? She was very likable and professional. My previous therapists tried too hard to get me to like them. My current therapist isn't focused on that. She truly just wants to work to help me. Um, do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? I've been very honest, but sometimes it's hard to be completely honest. It takes time. Uh, what would you like to share with a group of new therapists? Being patient and gentle has been really helpful for me because I tend to be hard on myself for not being better yet. Also, a sense of humor. It's so refreshing to have a therapist who so seamlessly can insert a timely comedic relief, and she, in parentheses, not every time, uh, when needed. I agree. I agree. Although there would be nothing worse than a therapist who was on. Um, same survey filled out by a, a woman under 18. For some reason, 75% uh, of the people who take the therapy uh, survey are women. And I, and I know that the, this show, uh, in general, has a little bit more of a female listenership than male but come on dudes fucking pull your weight take this survey uh she's under 18 uh what brought her to therapy i still wet the bed at 14 years old moved in with my mom uh parents were divorced so she said i could go see a shrink i saw him two times a month after school finally uh, my mom realized it was a psychological problem do you have any fears with starting therapy? I was afraid to tell the shrink why I was there. I was finally able to tell him of my shitty childhood, and I think being some, having someone impartial to talk to helped a lot. I didn't feel he was particularly empathetic. He was rather dry and uninvolved. The help was in me expressing myself. Um, that is uh, incredibly articulate and uh, insightful for uh, for somebody so young. And my experience with psychiatrists has been the same way. Um, I'm not a fan of talk therapy with psychiatrists. They're great for prescribing meds, and um, but talk therapy, uh, I think there's nothing like support groups of therapists. Uh, of the fears you described, did any come true? No, I was afraid of talking, taking the bus in the big city. I was afraid to tell my mom what I told him. I was still in keeping secrets mode. I was pretty damn shut down. Uh, what worked best for you in therapy? I guess having someone not related to me, not emotionally invested, helped me. It was the first time I think anyone actually heard me. Boy, there's nothing like feeling heard and seen. It is life-changing. Uh, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? It was a man, which at the time, I guess, I had no preference, being the first time I had ever seen a shrink. No, nothing was unsettling. Um, 
Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? I was too embarrassed to tell him I wet the bed. I thought it was the worst secret a kid could have. Utterly embarrassing. Such self-hate stemmed from it because I couldn't control it. Um, I, I honestly can't think of a less shameful secret than wetting the bed to go see a uh, a psychologist or a psych or a psychiatrist i mean that is you know we should all be so lucky that that that, that is our our issue um although not in practicality but in terms of uh, talking about it what would you like to share with a new group of therapists? I think the best thing a therapist can do is give empathy, help the person understand themselves, help them feel safe and heal. Wow. I bet you'd make a great therapist, whoever you are that filled that out. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. A lot of, a lot of uh, surveys filled out by women on, on this, uh, this go-round. Um, we were a little light on the, on the men taking it, so uh, dudes... Uh, Put down the video game, stop jerking off, do a little laundry, and come fill out the survey. As I broadly paint the most horrific stereotype of men ever. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by Gemma. She is in her 20s. She's asexual, was raised in a stable and safe, very religious environment. Um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about suicide all the time. I have issues with acceptance from God and friends and family, so I could never attempt it because of the extreme fear of what they would think of me, even though I would be dead. Stupid, I know. Deepest, darkest secrets. My deepest secret is that I somehow became a prostitute to pay my way through college. It started off waitressing at Hooters, and I got a tip that was above a generous amount, and one thing led to another. I was on a plane to Chicago for a weekend, and was paid for it. I felt like pretty woman. I could actually pay bills in college and not just put one gallon of gas in my car at a time. However, that weekend led to employment at a jack shack. I've never, I've never heard uh, a place called a jack shack, but I, I think I can figure out what goes down there. Uh, I never knew if it was going to be a hand job or full service. I hated it, and the worst part was that I had to embody a slutty slash porno mindset to get through it. I was so good at comp compartmentalizing that after the night of sleeping with a variety of men. Um, I think that was, I don't know if I read that with a variety of men. I had money. I'd go drink, forget about it, then do it again the next weekend. I now have a very prominent job in society and found a way out, but I would never tell a soul, for I can still not have sex without it being an act. I hate sex. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think I could only ever be turned on by men that are older than me and have some type of power. Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Most of my friends know I date older guys, but they don't know why. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I'm disgusted. I know why I like older men, because I was trained to be submissive and take it whatever way. It's the only familiar way, and I'm good at it. Well, I'm going to put my broken record on and say it would be really good to process a lot of that, a lot of that stuff instead of trying to hold that that inside especially if it's affecting how you feel about yourself um and anybody that's fantasizing about um going and doing a job you know as a uh, 
professional sex worker, I would uh, I would really think about what she said and maybe read a couple of books by uh, women who've been in that or men uh, who've been in that line of work. Um, this is uh, also from the uh, therapy survey filled out by a woman who is between 26 and 35. What brought you to therapy? After a few months of listening to the podcast, I finally felt like seeking the help of a therapist was not abnormal or a huge red sea for crazy being emblazoned on my chest. I've had manic and compulsive behavior since I was a child, but I was never allowed to seek help by either family members or my previous partners. Wow, that that is a bummer when you want to get help, but people... Um, shame you into not getting help a big fuck them going out the airwaves this is not broadcast there are no airwaves paul any fears associated with starting therapy i was afraid that the instant i walked out of the office i would have some type of mind-numbing prescription in hand or that the preliminary diagnosis would be something much worse than i expected did any of these fears come true? No. I felt really comfortable with my new therapist and knew almost instantly that I'd made the right decision by going. Instead of walking out with a prescription, I walked out feeling better about being me and having two new books to read. It was a very different experience than what I had expected. I love, love hearing that. Um, what worked best for you in therapy? Since I have OCD, having some homework from my therapist... She, and she puts in parentheses, now that I'm typing this, I realized that she did that on purpose. Um, having some homework from my therapist gave me an attainable goal to work on before my next meeting with her. It made me feel like I was being proactive about controlling my feelings for the first time instead of just being reactive and losing control. Uh, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? My first impression of her was that she reminded me of my ex-mother-in-law which was totally horrible at first. But once I started talking to her and telling her my story, the things she had to say made me feel like she was an old friend that completely understood what I was going through. At the end of the session, I couldn't wait to come back, which I didn't expect at all. Um, can you be completely honest with your therapist? Absolutely. By the end of my first session, she knew things about me that I'd never shared with my husband. Having someone that I could be truly honest with without feeling like I was being judged was exactly what I needed to see the walls I built around myself. Man, do I love reading that. And I love that there's probably somebody listening tonight that is on the fence about going to therapy and one of those one of those therapy things that I that I read is gonna give you that nudge and it's gonna change your fucking life. This is from the, this is a very, very rarely uh, filled out survey, but uh, sometimes I get some good ones here. This is from the vacation arguments survey. Uh, I've always found vacation, uh, something inherently ridiculous about arguing while on vacation. What are your most memorable vacation arguments? And uh, this is filled out by Maddie, who is, um, she's 22. My dad has always traveled a lot for work and belonged to most of those airport lounges. Our family was coming back from a ridiculously luxurious vacation in Mallorca, Spain, and apparently it only took one plane flight before my dad was back to his normal bipolar self. I remember him trying to get us into a flight lounge, though according to the poor lady behind the counter, my dad was not actually a member of this particular club. As a 10-year-old, I remember feeling so much pity for this receptionist. This woman is not paid well enough to deal with this snotty monster. He had no right to be acting that way. 
I wanted to apologize to her. Eventually, the situation escalated, and my father said in his scariest tone, I'm going to ask you a simple question. Are we or are we not welcome here? When she replied, she sounded so fatigued. No, sir. No, you are not. As the anguish of being refused ruffled his feathers even further, he told me to put out my arms in the same way I would if I were helping him carry firewood into our house. Uh, forearms level, palms up, elbows together. I'm about to ask why. I was about to ask why when I noticed a bowl of complimentary oranges on the counter. My dad, in an attempt to get back at this poor woman for turning us away, piled free oranges onto my scrawny, sunburnt forearms until I couldn't carry any more. I looked at the woman the whole time as if to let her know that he does this to everyone. We didn't even eat the oranges. Twelve years later, it all seemed so absurd. I tell this story with a smile on my face, despite all the fear I had at the time. Telling this story also makes me want to eat oranges. Thank you, Maddie. And if that's the Maddie that I met in uh, Portland, God bless you. She helped put uh, the Maddie up there, helped put together a, uh, a meeting at Lewis and Clark College, and we did a group recording of, uh, of a bunch of listeners, which I hope to air at, uh, at some point. Um, hey, a survey filled out by a dude. This is filled out by uh, a guy who, this is the first day in therapy, filled out by a guy between 26 and 35. What brought you into therapy? Obsessive thoughts, overwhelming anxiety, fear of the future, depression. Uh, any fears associated with starting it? Uh, that I wouldn't be able to communicate the feelings and thoughts I was having. Did any of those fears come true? Yes, but over time I was able to find a good therapist who was able to help me find the words to describe my issues. What worked best for you in therapy? Medication, reassurance, mental organization skills, breathing techniques. Uh, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? I've seen seven different therapists. Some turned me off instantly with their attitudes, speech patterns, etc. Others started out well but eventually made me feel as if they had a preconceived notion of what was wrong and how to fix it. This made me feel as if they weren't listening to me when I raised concerns about treatment. My current therapist is finally uh, offering me the right combination of listening, asking the right questions, and explaining their thoughts instead of just making notes and expecting me to just play along. Um, you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist. I feel as if I both could and should be completely honest with my therapist, but I am still not. I don't know why I feel that way or why I act contrary to that feeling. You know, my thought um, is just from what you've described here is that there's a feeling of losing control um, by, you know, giving yourself into the stuff that they suggest or by revealing the, the innermost part of yourself, yourself and um I think that would be a good thing to to note that that's going on inside you. I know I'm a fucking control freak that is afraid everybody's going to walk on my soul with golf shoes. Um, but I can tell you, opening up and getting vulnerable with safe people and having them accept me is the greatest feeling uh, I've ever experienced. And uh, let's see, what was the last? Uh, anything you'd like to share with new therapists? Uh, learn to ask questions. Um, which gets anxious and shy patients talking. Let us ramble about unrelated topics. It's usually leading us somewhere eventually. Some of us may not want only drugs or only therapy, but most of us want drugs to deliver immediate results so we can live our lives until the therapy can get to a place 
where we can survive without it. Thank you for that, dude. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and I wanted to read um, part of this um, filled out by a woman who calls herself Juju B. She's in her 20s, and um, let's see. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse when I was about 5 my dad took me to our family pediatrician I had the flu I think instead of my mom who was away doing some other family stuff the doctor asked my dad to leave the room and then he pulled my panties down held my pussy lips pinched in each hand and shook or trembled them from his demeanor I think he was looking to see if my hymen had been broken oh god that is, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how you check for a broken hymen, but that does not sound like the way you check for a broken hymen. That sounds like he was a pedophile who was using his cover as a pediatrician. Um, but I would talk to a doctor and ask them. Um, she writes, my parents are educated, compassionate, loving, and supportive, and would have never let anything like that happen. Um when I think of the incident later, I'm so embarrassed for my brilliant, loving father that let this guy, uh, let, that let anything like this happen. Um, when I think of the incident later, oh no, I just read that. Um, cut to age 17. Um, my dad has rage and control issues. I'm on a nine-day bus tour around Norway with the two of them, a month or two to go till I start college. We've been bickering and he's been putting her down like he does. You're trash. I'd fire you if I could. Uh, throughout. On a free day in Oslo, we follow him in his quest to find the Nobel Prize Museum. We walk around and uh, we walk around and through and end up down the streets of Oslo finding nothing. Furious, he announces we are going back to the hotel and going to sleep. Them in a shared bed, me on a cot on the floor. The day is done. My mom is talking to me in her sing-song, good times voice in the dark, and I hear a wet slapping sound. It's fast and doesn't slow down or stop. And my mom and I continue to make small talk, a little louder now. I try to convince her that I've suddenly fallen asleep by yawning loudly and not responding to anything else. The slapping continues, then ends. I now know my dad was just taking the day's stress out on himself, which is not okay. But at the time, I thought he was forcing my mom to lay there, hence her even-toned voice, while he fucked her. Both of those are make my skin crawl. Both of those. What that doctor did and what your dad did. Because your dad had to know you heard that. And, and you know, for him to not care that you heard that sound, because a 17-year-old knows what that fucking sound is or can probably figure it out. Um, that, that is just a big... I don't give a shit but any about about anybody else but me and what I'm feeling. Um, this is from the shouldn't feel this way survey. What would you like people to say at your funeral? And this was filled out by a guy. Yay, we got a dude. Uh, calls himself Pittsburgh guy. He's straight in his 30s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. What would you like people to say at your funeral? That I was a loving, caring, smart son and dad. How's writing that make you feel? Happy and sad, slightly tearful. 
If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would go back and not marry my ex-wife. I would imagine there's a lot of people that wouldn't go back and marry their exes. I would also lift weights earlier in life and would not feel like I needed someone. What do you feel that you don't feel you should feel? Uh, I don't feel excited about my future with my girlfriend and her four kids, but I am terrified that I won't be able to support a household of six kids. I have two, 50% of the time. I'm worried the kids will all resent me and that I can't move past this feeling of fear. I have anxiety and have had bad relationships, so I'm very fearful. You know, my the reason I wanted to read that is my first thought is the episode that we recorded with Katie uh, Palacio, um, I think I'm pronouncing her name right, I forgot. Um, she was uh, moved into a blended family as a kid, and they had money, but the thing that really fucked with her was the parents were split. Her mom still loved her, but her stepdad resented her, and her mom would be pulled onto her stepfather's side because she didn't want to displease him. And so I think way more important than money, um, you know, if you're putting food on the table and you're making your rent, I think your kids would much rather have your attention and your intimacy than um, the latest and the best toys. Maybe not when they're 12, but when they're 20 and 25, they'll realize how important it was that you looked them in the eyes and you really listened and they felt heard and, and seen. So those are that's my thought that that's what you should really focus on is to try to be present with those kids. And, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a parent, so easier said than done. I can't imagine what it's like supporting four kids, let alone six. So uh, you're fucked. That's what I'm basically telling you. This... Sometimes I feel bad when I make a joke that's like dark because I think somebody's going to think I'm serious. I should just stop apologizing. Stop qualifying. Jesus Christ. I never did this when I was on stage. Um, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by... Oh, another dude. It's a sausage party. This is filled out by Jesse. He's straight. He's in his 20s. Was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Um, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Um, he writes that they knew who I was. You know, Jesse, when I read that, that was like a, a, a lightning bolt right through my soul because that, that is what I've wanted my whole life. And I think that's often what my, my as I was talking about earlier, what my sexual fantasies are about. It's an extension of wanting to be seen and accepted. Um, how does writing that make you feel? Alone. I've worked so hard at keeping others out there um, that the mere idea of someone ever saying that they knew me seems impossible. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I'd like to see my funeral just to know how many people would show up. And hey, if no one does, at least I'll be there. Oh, that makes me laugh. Uh, how many of these? Uh, write as many of these as you feel like. I'm supposed to feel blank about blank, but I don't. I feel blank. I'm supposed to feel proud about how much I've accomplished going from a high school failure to a junior college honor student, but I don't. I feel more alone than ever. I should be celebrating my achievements with friends and family, but instead, I'm without friends and living with a family that is emotionally distant. I'm supposed to feel excited about the possibility of being accepted into a university, but I don't. I feel scared. Um, if for most of my life, uh, I have been unable to make any sort of connection with others, how the hell am I supposed to survive in an environment where making connections to your fellow peers is practically a requirement? How does it feel to write your feelings out? Worried. 
I've become so used to internalizing my feelings that even thinking about writing how I feel scares the shit out of me. Do you feel you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes and no. I know that there are others with social anxiety and avoidant personality disorder. I know, thanks to your show, that I'm not alone in dealing with intrusive thoughts. What I don't know is if this way that I internalize all of my feelings is normal. Most people that I've spoken to on forums have all mentioned that they had at least one person who they could talk to when they needed to, be it a family member, spouse, friend, or even a therapist. Everyone seems to have someone that they could fall back on, a support system. I've never had that. So instead, I've allowed every feeling I've had to fester within me until it is scarred over. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yes, it would be nice to know that I'm not as alone as I think I am. Well, guess what, Jesse? The very next survey that I printed out I'm going to read it to you. This is filled out by a woman named Jewel. I wonder if this is the singer. No, it's Jewels. Yeah, the singer's taking your your survey, Paul. Fucking egomaniac. Um, She is straight. She's in her 30s. Oh, it could be Jewel. Uh, What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Um, I want people to share stories of all of my ridiculous moments and laugh until they pee their pants. I do not want a funeral, though, because they are creepy and I do not want anyone looking at or touching my dead body. I want my body laid to rest in the earth with no coffin to keep me from the dirt. If this can't happen, then I will be cremated and my ashes spread somewhere beautiful. I haven't decided where yet. I would actually like my ashes spread on the sandwich of somebody I hate. Something nice and sticky, like if they got like one piece of bread up and it's like just mayonnaise. Have all my closest friends just run up and just douse that fucker. Um, how does writing that make you feel? It makes me feel good because I want the people who are going to mourn me to feel good and to have their last memories of me to be good ones. I would agree. I would, I would want my funeral to be uh, a celebration. But I'd also like to know that deep inside, everybody was dying. <laughs> I want it all. Um, if you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would go back to when my parents were first dating so that I could observe their relationship up until they were divorced. I want to be able to fill in the gaps in their relationship as well as my childhood since I can, can't remember almost I can remember almost nothing from before the divorce at age nine, except for the events that were captured in photographs. Um, I'm supposed to feel love for dad, but I don't. I feel sad and angry. I'm supposed to feel good about myself, but I don't. I feel disappointed and small. I'm supposed to feel relaxed and happy about hanging out with my friends, but I don't. I feel anxious, afraid, uneasy, boring, like I have to try hard to be able to to make conversation, even though it should be easy, because I love them and I want to be there. Boy, that I don't know what what's going on, uh, Jules, but that I have felt like that so many times, and that was when my depression had its claws in me. So I don't I don't know if you're suffering from depression, but um, that might be a good thing to to look into. Um, how does writing that make you feel? She writes uneasy. I'm so good at keeping things locked away. Jesse, are you listening? Uh, In the numb zone, I'm afraid to try to let them out. I am not sure what is in there. Do you feel abnormal for feeling what you do? No, I think that a lot of people feel the way I do. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yes, it would. Well, Jules and Jesse, if you both contact me, 
I will give you, I will, and you're uh, agree to it, uh, I will exchange, uh, put you in touch with each other via email. Um, I don't, these surveys are taken anonymously, so I don't have your email addresses. Um, and please don't email me in and pose as Jesse or Jules. Um, I like how I immediately go to the place of uh, my listeners are just skeevy fucking people that can't be trusted. <laughs> that would be bad that, I'm, that I pour my heart out and all uh, my shame and secrets to a people that I think are skeevy and can't be trusted. This is, uh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey um, filled out by a guy named Pauly. Um, he is in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, I said this is from Shame and Secret Survey, right? Yeah. Never been sexually abused. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, he's straight, uh, but he qualifies it straight, but I have no drive to achieve anything with anyone. My experience so far in life is that sex is a physically enjoyable act, but nothing I can't live without. Um, Deepest, darkest thoughts. It's cliche, but I often think that the old quip, kill them all and let God sort them out, might be the best option for this world. I feel as if I cause nothing but pain and heartache in those who I allow to get close to me, even when their words and empirical evidence shows otherwise. I'm afraid that I'll be dead in the next year or two and no one will really notice or care. Some may even rejoice. Deepest, darkest secrets. I seriously consider if the world would be better off without me on a regular basis. The answer is almost always yes. But that is overwhelmed by thoughts of, fuck, what is best for the world? Too much cool shit is going... Oh, fuck what is best for the world. Too much cool shit is going to happen in the future, and I'll be damned if I'm going to miss it. While I still have those thoughts, it's been a long time since I've considered ever doing anything about it. I've sat on my bed and stared at a loaded pistol while drinking a bottle of whiskey on more than one occasion. You know, my first thought as I read this, uh, Polly, is the, the, the drinking a bottle of whiskey is probably related to the feelings of suicide. When I was drinking at my heaviest, I thought about putting a gun in my mouth about once an hour. So if you want to do anything about what's, what's going on and, and try to get out of that, you know, maybe think about going someplace for your for your drinking or talk to somebody about it. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Watching someone I know have sex, with or without their knowledge, live or on tape. None of those details matter. It's just something about the taboo of knowing one or more of the people involved. Would you ever consider telling a close friend? Yes, my friends know. Do, do the secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? Uh, I know it's abnormal, whatever that means, but I don't care. It doesn't affect my life or relationship, so there's no reason to change it. Thank you for that, uh, Polly. And I, I, I hope you, I hope you uh, come out of that feeling of not wanting to be around. I think 95% of the people that listen to the podcast have gone through, gone through that. You know, I heard somebody to say say at my support group tonight that our lives are all different on the outside, but so similar to where the place we wound up on the inside, and that uh, that really stuck with me. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Daisy. She's straight. <laughs> Why did I say it like that? It's Daisy. She calls herself Daisy. She's straight. She's in her forties. 
was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. In the summer of 79, when I used to go to the beach with the family uh, that my mother paid to take care of me, there was an older boy, quote, man, that would come with us. There was never enough seats, so someone always had to lay in the back of the wagon. It was always him and one of us girls, and he would like to play what's the end play what's at the end of the happy trail. You know, the dark hair line that starts below the belly button and ends up at the fucking penis. He also got to babysit us sometimes, and then we would play the game in the dark closet. You show me yours, and I'll show you mine. But that's one of the many. That's sexual abuse. If, uh, you know, if you were a kid and he was an older boy or a man, um, that's my thought. I like how I've become kind of appointed myself as the Judge Judy of inappropriate fingering. I'd like that on my gravestone. No, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not getting I'm not getting a tombstone. I'm I'm having my ashes spread at Subway. Deepest darkest thoughts. Just fucking leaving. Packing what I need and disappearing. Let it letting all of it go. Doing what I want, when I want and not needing to answer to fucking anyone. My whole life has been making sure everyone else is okay. Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm screaming in my fucking head. Um, deepest, darkest secrets. I am my mother's only child. My dad left when I was seven. He wanted me aborted. And I have raised my mom since then. I remember the day my dad left. He looked up at me as I was looking through the banister railing and he asked me, do you want to come with me or stay with your mom? And I said, Daddy, I want to come with you. And he said, no, I think it's best if you stay with your mother. Then why the fuck did he ask you? Just, oh. He left then uh, and moved back to New York. Uh, to me, it was the farthest he could get away from me. Now, after 35 years, he has decided he wants me back in his life. His wife has died, and now he has no one. He has moved back to California and acts like nothing ever happened. He even said to me that I've never called him, so what was he to do? And she puts in parentheses, I'm a fucking child. Sometimes I feel so fucked up. Everyone needs me. It's all up to me. None of this matters. I don't know what my deepest, darkest secrets are. My hate, my disdain. Here's one. When my mother passes away, I don't think I will cry and will probably feel a sense of relief. Same with my dad. He's moving here and is trying to buy a mobile home in Hemet so he has something to give me when he dies. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, Daisy, my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to you, you know. Um, you guys know what a piece of work my mom is. You know, that's pretty much what her mom did to her. She left her to be raised by... Her dad abandoned her, moved to California, and then when she was seven, uh, I think around seven, her mom left to go work in New York and left her to be raised um, by another family. And uh, it fucking fucked her up. And... And then my grandmother moved back into my mom's life when she was, when my grandmother was 65. Like, hey, I'm back. I want to see the grandkids. And my mom was too Catholic to ever to, to say, you fucking filthy cunt. You abandoned me and now you want to come live off my husband's money. Fuck you. But she never did that and said she, uh, whatever, you know. The anger came out in other ways. At least that's my take on it. I don't know. 
who knows who knows where the truth is but um don't be my mom daisy don't be my mom draw some boundaries deal with your anger don't do shit because people are afraid you're afraid people are going to think you're selfish you know who you know who usually thinks that other people are selfish um or obsess about somebody else being selfish people who are themselves selfish most people that aren't selfish have compassion for other people but know how to detach from it so your dad sounds like a like a fucking guy that is incapable of putting himself in somebody else's shoes because if he could he would know how much it broke your heart what he did sexual fantasy is most powerful to you she writes why does why does it have to revolve around sexual fantasies but okay here it goes when my husband is fucking me or pleasuring me I like to think that someone is watching from outside the window getting off or when my husband is eating me out from behind with my ass in the air I like to think it's my favorite girlfriend yeah I like that I like watching pornos of girls getting themselves off I've been using a vibrator since I was probably 10 or 11 I think I taught my mom about it when she found me getting off with her back massager uh yeah, here's a news flash. Your mom didn't buy the back massager because she had a bad back. Um, she probably just pretended like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? I told my girlfriend about it, the one I spoke about in question nine, and she thought it was fucking hot. God, I love her. No, I would never tell my husband. As I'm getting older, I would like to watch a little porno while we're having our sexual fun, but just not sure how to approach it because I don't want him to think that it's him that I need, that it's him that I need this now to get off. It's really just the stress of life. We're not young anymore, and sometimes it's just hard to come down from it all and relax. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Not no, not really. Other than I am a sexual being and I do love myself. Any comments to make the podcast better? Just listen, Paul. Shh, listen. That kind of hurt when I read it, but I know sometimes I uh, I get a little carried away. And that's the you know that's the that's the uh, the roll of the dice you take when you ask people to uh, make comments about the podcast. Don't ask them if you don't want to hear all of them. Um, And I'm going to take it out on this last one. This is from the Happy Moments survey. And I have to say, this is one of my, it's the definition to me of sublime, um, filled out by Laura. And one of her happy moments, she writes, one memory that really sticks out in my mind is when I was about four or so during the summer when we were still in our house in the country outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana. We had an in-ground swimming pool. My dad used to play this stereo loud enough from our downstairs living room out the sliding patio doors so we could hear it out on the deck by the pool. I just remember it being just after sunset and that summer, that summer we had Van Morrison's wavelength album on constant loop on the record player. The smell of the chlorine on my skin after getting out of the pool for the last time of the day the heat and humidity still in the air, and the sound of the katydids with Van Morrison playing, winding down a long day of swimming and enjoying just being a kid. I just can't describe the feeling of contentness, contentedness, and joy I felt with my mom and dad there. It was like a perpetual vacation and just one evening. Man, I don't know if I have ever heard 
a description that I could f- feel, hear, smell, and feel emotionally like that one. And 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 I'm I couldn't even name a single song on that album. I probably recognize him if I heard him, but I know that feeling of of being so tired at the end of the day of being in the pool, but you're so satisfied and your skin's all wrinkly and your eyes, when you look at the lights, you see halos and, uh, uh, yeah, that was just, that just knocked me out. And what a great moment to, to end, to end on. So if you're out there and you're listening, I hope you heard something tonight that reminds you that, uh, you are most definitely not alone. And, uh, Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.